Take up your cross and follow me daily was not Jesus' complete thought last week. There's more. Welcome to Anakinosis, where we renew our minds towards biblical worldview and the scriptures. This is a show for anyone looking to build or repair the biblical worldview. Whether you're 100% comfortable in the current Christian culture, or you feel like an outsider looking in, everyone is welcome. My name is Jeremy Agin. I'm just a guy with a Bible literacy background who has ASD and who thinks a lot about how to think. Today, Jesus continues explaining what following him could look like. Let's roll back the tape and then continue. So we go back to Mark 8, 34, and we'll go through 38. And calling the crowd to him with his disciples, he said to them, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospel will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what can a man give in return for his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. Okay, we have to be careful about what expectations we bring to the text. As source material for this podcast, I use an old book I wrote called Opportunity Jesus, and it had a really bad take on this passage that was full of bringing my own expectations to the text. I wasn't careful then to recognize that what Jesus means here has to agree with what he says at other times and should jive with the later apostles' writings if they understood him well. From my Christian circle growing up, a great deal was made about the word save and its implications. My circle was obsessed with saving souls of people from hell. Then, later, they shifted gears into attempting to legislate morality upon their foes instead of offering them Jesus. For both reasons, they aren't my circle right now. But why were they so obsessed with soul saving? Historically, the Second Great Awakening in America saw churches make a major push towards altar calls and praying the prayer. This was introduced by Charles Finney. It was initially criticized by John Williamson Nevin, who called the altar an anxious bench full of manipulation. Yet this was continued to be used by Dwight Moody, Uh, Billy Sunday, and later Billy Graham. Eventually, the church's focus was on soul-saving numbers, at least in some of the denominations, and this was based on laying out the knowledge of Jesus on the table and then coercing the person to accept it. And in many places, this would follow with a discipleship that consisted of being more full of knowledge and the ability to coerce others. For many circles, this seemed too easy. Easy believism. Just pray a prayer. Are you kidding me? It costs to follow Jesus. And then in some other circles, rules were laid out to what you must do to earn it instead. But neither easy believism or earning your salvation are a paradigm that Jesus is laying out here. Now, I sat and I wrote out what I thought was a good take on this. 
It was a couple pages. I felt good about it. I slept on it. And then I got up to record it today. And when I read the passages again, I was like, nope. <laughs> call it the Holy Spirit. Call it fresh eyes. All I know is that my second take was bringing my issues to the table as well. Man, it is so hard not to do that. But trying to just let Jesus speak here, let's look at the context again. First, he tells his disciples he's going to die and rise again three days later. Then Peter says he won't let that happen. Then Jesus calls him an adversary and tells him to get behind him. And then Jesus says, if you want to follow him, you have to be willing to deny yourself and take up your cross. And then completing the thought, he says, if we try to save ourselves by denying him and his cross, it'll equal our loss. If we follow, which is to deny ourselves, it will equal salvation. Then to make it very, very clear, he doesn't talk about what he will say to those who follow well, he only speaks to what will happen to those who are ashamed of him. Says he will return the shame. Ashamed of him. Ep ahi sko no ahi is the word there. And it means disgraced. Like someone being singled out, embarrassed, because they put their confidence in something that was a lie. It's associated with the humiliation. If you've stepped outside of your normal church circles, you might be worried about being ashamed of Jesus. I know this was my initial worry when I was leaving Christian education. If I leave a particular circle of Christians, am I ashamed of Jesus? It was helpful for my pastor to laugh at this and to say, of course not. If you leave some group of Christians because of Jesus, you're not ashamed of Jesus. You are in fact taking up a cross and following him outside a wayward Christian culture. Denying Jesus is not saying consumerism church is weird. Denying Jesus is not saying Christian nationalism is bad. Denying Jesus is denying Jesus, being ashamed of Jesus for dying and being weak, being ashamed of Jesus for helping the poor. And this is different than being ashamed of people who have slid a now inconvenient Jesus to the side. And in context here, and this is painful, Peter is ashamed. Peter doesn't want a weak Christ to die. He doesn't want a weak Peter to to let it happen, or even worse, follow him to that end. So the question here is, are we willing to follow Jesus where he's going? Doing what he's doing? Or is that path shameful to us? Does his end disgrace us? He said, for whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation of him, Will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels? Same word back. Jesus will feel disgraced by those who feel disgraced. When will this happen? Well, how do I explain this without getting into the weeds? 
Most Jewish people expected a future day of judgment. Hebrew scriptures had promised that God would come with his holy ones. And here Jesus is taking that role, saying this will all be a part of him receiving his kingdom. So that's when, when Jesus receives the physical kingdom, the intersection of heaven and earth as one. Now, I do want to point out, as I read this again, that there is the possibility, since he says in this generation, that he is speaking to their generation specifically. And so the shame that might be returned could be the fall of Jerusalem. However, this does seem like a broader statement um, that can be uh, applied to us even today. And the physical receiving of the kingdom did not occur at the fall of Jerusalem, even though that was very much a day of judgment. Okay, so quickly looking at the key words in this passage to help us understand. First, save your life. Save. The word save is the word sozo, which means to rescue or to heal. And it happens to be a word that Paul uses all the time, but also something that he uses for a person who suffers loss at the judgment seat of Christ, but remains saved. Life and soul in this passage um, are both the same word. I don't know why they're translated in English differently, but they're both the word for psyche, often used as the ego or the personality rather than an eternal soul. A soul in this context is a person's life in the body, not a spirit that exists inside or outside the body. So when Jesus says, loses his life for my sake, he's talking about our self-denial rather than our physical deaths, though it could include physical death. Now, what I don't know is what the result will be for someone whom Jesus returns disgrace. Our life experiences are really not binary of being perfectly faithful or not. However, if being ashamed of the cross is to reject the cross completely or believe that it's a lie, then I guess it is a pretty binary situation. And Jesus's return of the favor is pretty clearly described by Jesus elsewhere as being headed to the garbage dump. Anyway, that's my fresh take on it today. Maybe I should have gone with my other interpretation. I'm just doing my best here. Now, the first verse in Mark 9 is likely his final statement of chapter 8. Oh, okay, so quick review leading into this verse. Jesus says, I'm going to die. Peter says, no, you're not. Jesus says, yes, I am. Get behind me. You must deny yourself. Deny your desires. Follow me. If you try to save yourself and avoid this, you will lose. And if you are disgraced by me, then I'll be disgraced by you. Mark 9, 1. And he said to them, Truly, I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God after it has come with power. This is also confusing if we bring our own uh, preconceptions to the text. It obviously can't mean the final mergers of heaven and earth. But has the merger begun? Yes. Is it powerful? Yes. Did the disciples see it? Yes, and like Jesus said, most of them would see it. 
not Judas. Before the physical merger of heaven and earth, called God's kingdom, there is a merger of people and God's spirit, something Paul will call making us little temples. We are the little overlaps of God's power. We are the witnesses to his peace and hope and love. And sometimes we get cut off from accessing it due to pain and trauma or rebellion, which, by the way, is not the same thing. But even during the times of in access, we are held. Peter, James, and John are about to get a sneak peek of what is ahead in the merger, something beyond becoming a little temple. They get to see heaven and earth combined, but only for a bit. Mark 9, 2-4, And after six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John and led them up a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them. And his clothes became radiant, intensely white, as no one on earth could bleach them. And there appeared to them Elijah with Moses, and they were talking with Jesus. This is awesome. When is this happening? Where is this happening? What is happening? Why? Is this happening? Right? Those are the natural questions. So when Mark says it was six days after the take up your cross conversation, Luke says it was about eight days after. Um, So it's give or take a week later. Where? Well, Jesus had just taken the disciples north to Caesarea Philippi. And in light of that, many people believe that the high mountain they climb would be Mount Hermon which is a 9,200-foot mountain 12 miles northeast of Caesarea Philippi. Now, there are other mountains they could have climbed to, but Jesus only takes three disciples with him on whichever mountain to witness this mountaintop. And don't miss the mountaintop as well. Eden was likely on a mountain. Moses met God on a mountain. Elijah met God on a mountain. And then this was after working with God on another mountain. God makes himself known in the mountains. This is a peak example. Pardon the pun. Jesus, hey, he hikes tall mountains. And I mention this for two reasons. First, if people say they must be exactly like Christ to be a good Christian, you can ask them, do you hike tall mountains? Now, clearly hiking has nothing to do with Christianity, but Jesus did it. So, If we're free not to hike, then we are liberated in other areas, and the pressures off for us to be legal replicas of Jesus. But second, we can demonstrate playful child-likeness in our relationship with Jesus if we do recreational things with him. Have you ever hiked with Jesus? I used to, and a friend the other day mentioned it and thinks I should try it again. I should try it again. Now, what is happening here? Transfiguration. The Greek word is metamorpho, from where we get metamorphosis or metamorphosis, right? Here, it's translated transfigured. Jesus isn't merely changing on the outside like a glamour spell on a fantasy show. He's changed into another form. Jesus in human flesh is, in that moment, transformed into the Son of Man, glorified body, still physical, but heavenly, Edenic, without flaw, glorious, beyond our bleach. And these apostles see Jesus in this way as he will look to us in the kingdom. 
So standing glorified on the top of a mountain, supernaturally two famous Old Testament figures appear with him and talk with him. Oh man, to be in on that conversation uh, that Mark does not give us. And these two men are mountaintop men themselves. And I do think that matters. Elijah the prophet and Moses the lawgiver. And just a fun side note, Moses is entering the promised land for the first time here, which is kind of cool. But also think of the representation. Elijah and Moses were kings of the pre-merger relationship with God. Not literal kings, but they were great representatives of relationship with God. Their spiritual relationships with God were very tangible when they were on mountaintops. They were mediators of God's message to the people. And also, if Moses represents the law and Elijah the prophets, you have a nice symbol of all the scriptures standing there with Jesus. Now, why is this happening? Peter, James, and John are getting a sneak peek of heaven and earth as one, the power of the kingdom. What an amazing honor. Now, Luke has more details on the conversation of the three men. Luke 9, verse 30 to 32. And behold, two men were talking with him, Moses and Elijah, who appeared in glory and spoke of his departure, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. Now Peter and those who were with him were heavy with sleep, but when they became fully awake, they saw his glory and the two men who stood with him. LOL. Okay, the hike must have been hard because the bros are asleep through most of this. But when they wake up, they catch the end of the conversation and it's about Jesus' upcoming departure in Jerusalem, his death. And it's something that's being framed here as an accomplishment rather than a loss. So true. Peter's misunderstanding what's going on and we can give him the benefit of the doubt because he slept through some of it. Verse 33 And as the men were parting from him, Peter said to Jesus, Master, it is good that we are here. Let us make three tents, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah, not knowing what he had said. Peter doesn't know what he's saying, probably because Peter doesn't know what he's seeing. I think he sees the glory of Jesus, the two prophets, and thinks that the kingdom of God is happening in real time. Super exciting. And if that's the fact, then it's a fulfillment of the Feast of Booths. During the Feast of Booths, everyone stays in tents for seven days. So Peter, hoping this is the kickoff of the kingdom, offers to build some tents for each of them, little tabernacles for each guy. And it is a pattern I've noticed that God is always using Jesus to fulfill major Messiah events on feast days. And the Feast of Booths is the next holiday from Peter's point of view on the calendar. Although, just one week before, and 12 miles southwest of the mountain, Peter had confessed Jesus as the Messiah, he slides into confusion in this event as to what that really means, not knowing what to say or think. And so God steps in to um, clarify what is going on. Luke 9, 34 to 35. As he was saying these things, a cloud came and overshadowed them, and they were afraid as they entered the cloud. And a voice came out of the cloud saying, This is my son, my chosen one. Listen to him. When that cloud came over, Moses was probably like, Here we go. I've seen this before. I translate this as, Peter, James, John, this is God. Hence the mighty mysterious cloud. This is is my son Jesus. He is the Messiah. He 
is above all, and when he tells you things like he will suffer and die, can you listen to him? Jesus is chosen by God. The author of Hebrews will elaborate this later about how he was chosen, and it's beautiful. But we hear here that Jesus is above all. He is the Messiah. He is the King, and we get to know him. Going back to Mark 9, 8 to 10. And suddenly, looking around, they no longer saw anyone with them but Jesus only. And as they were coming down the mountain, he charged them to tell no one what they had seen until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. So they kept the matter to themselves, questioning what this rising from the dead might mean. So the transfiguration is complete. Elijah and Moses are gone. The apostles are confused. They're hiking down the mountain. Jesus kind of ruins the fun by telling them not to tell anyone about the greatest event in human history so far. And to hold it until he has risen from the dead. He's trusting them with this big part of himself. But then they ask, what does rising from the dead mean? That's a tricky one, Jesus. That's an encrypted statement. Now, earlier that week, he had told them about the upcoming suffering. And then they saw Moses and Elijah talking to him about his death. And they're not supposed to share any of this until he rises back to life. But they don't know what that means. We can joke about that, but unless we know how the story will play out, which none of these guys know, uh, it will be very difficult to understand. And we know that they don't figure it out for a while because later in the Gospels, when Peter and John find Jesus' body missing from his tomb, they realize for the first time what scripture had said about Jesus rising from the dead. So, gentlemen, you've seen a glimpse of the coming kingdom. I will be dying first. Don't tell anyone right now. Wait until I'm alive after the death part. Any questions? Yeah, they got one. They've got Elijah on their brain. So this comes from Mark 9, 11 to 13. And they asked him, why do the scribes say that first Elijah must come? And he said to them, Elijah does come first to restore all things. And how is it written of the Son of Man that he should suffer many things and be treated with contempt? But I tell you that Elijah has come, and they did to him whatever they pleased, as it is written of him. Jesus, we know the scriptures say that Elijah must come before the Messiah. So, like, huh? Did he? Was it? up there on the mountain? Well, what's going on? And Jesus says, yep, it does say that about Elijah. Doesn't it also say the son of man should suffer many things as well? That's what I've been trying to tell you. But as for Elijah, he did come and they did him dirty. Matthew adds a key component to this story in 17.3. It says, then the disciples understood that he was speaking to them of John the Baptist. You know, another pattern I've noticed in the scriptures is something scholars will call inconsistent fulfillment of prophecies. I don't like that term inconsistent because it's assuming our rules is what God should be following. But what I see is that God fulfills things however he wants, and it's often surprising or not what the Jewish people were anticipating. This is one of those. They were expecting Elijah, the actual prophet of the 9th century uh, BCE, to show up in the promised land and to set things up for 
an anointed Messiah. They believed that because prophecy said someone named Elijah would do that. Who else would it be? In this case, it's a first century CE guy named John. And when Luke is putting together his authorized official story of Jesus, he mentions that an angel of the Lord tells John's parents that their baby will minister in the spirit and the power of Elijah to turn the hearts of fathers back to children and the disobedient to the attitude of the righteous so as to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. Now, when asked if he was the Messiah, John said no. When he was asked if he was Elijah, he said no. When he was asked if he was the prophet, which is a major figure promised in the law, he said no. When he is asked, who are you? He said he was preparing the way for the Lord. So he himself, so he sees himself in Elijah's role, but he does not see himself as Elijah, the other actual dude. And this is right thinking. There's no reincarnation here. There's no eternal Elijah walking the hills here, now calling himself John. They are separate men with similar ministries, which were highlighted in this podcast series. And earlier in Matthew's story, Jesus had said, John was the Elijah who is to come, if you can accept that. Now, was he done dirty? Yeah, King Herod killed him for a dancer's pleasure. Now, for the left-behind group of Christianity, this acceptance was a clause. They say that Jesus says he will not come, not that he has come. And so since John was not accepted, another must come. That's And, and they assume that's one of the two witnesses of Revelation and the tribulation after the rapture. And if I just triggered you with that language, I apologize. I grew up in that. Um, I have some trauma, but it's not from this. This, I just roll my eyes at now. But I grew up in a youth group that told stories about the rapture and tribulation around a bonfire every summer to get my friends to come to Jesus before the one world government killed them for coming to Jesus too late. Anyway, if you have a theology that John was rejected, so another Elijah must come before Jesus' return, then you also must have the belief that because of Jesus' rejection, the kingdom didn't come in the first century, and that's the only reason we have a delay. This is a position that puts God's timing at the whim of people's acceptance. Well, what if they reject the next Elijah and Jesus' next visit? Will God be thwarted again? I believe that rapture and tribulation theology is something that people bring to their reading rather than something you naturally discover while reading in context. More on that when we get there. But what's clear to me is that the events of humanity never surprise God or thwart him. He told Daniel about Jesus' rejection and death long before in Daniel 9, meaning John's acceptance was also an impossibility. On top of all this, Jesus said, Don't tell anyone yet. This is all a secret that you should take to my grave. As we continue to build our biblical worldview, we want to think about what in our minds needs renewed. Jesus is receiving a kingdom that we can be a part of. There's a lot of things that will be enticing for us to throw our lives at, but we'll lose those lives. Instead, we can throw our lives at the one who says, you don't have to be enough because I am. One of the great benefits of trusting God's way over our own is 
that through the rejection and through loss, he's always unthwarted. I know in some cases this stirs panic thoughts about God. If he is unthwartable, then why does the world suck so bad? Is he just not powerful? Why did he let all of this happen? Well, he chooses to let us be. Not in a deistic, uncaring way, but in a way where he's laid out the pathway to him and he's laid out his track record of trustworthiness. And then he says, me or you, kid, I will let you go either way. And that's why the world sucks. And that's why it's also beautiful. We're a mix of good and bad choices and our bad choices hurt other people. Jesus described it as a field with wheat and weeds. And you know that Christian nationalism thing that's so ugly where people throw their lives to change the nation's laws to make people follow God's morality? Yeah, God's not like that. So he is powerful, yet he's not enforcing of his way. He offers his way. But if you want to know what that looked like, you can read about a national religion of Israel and how God enforced it in the Old Testament. This isn't what God is doing any longer. He wasn't doing that because he thought it would work, and then when it failed, he moved on to the New Testament. He was doing that so that people would see how impossible legislating righteousness was, that nobody could do it. And in in this way, they would be ready for an alternative. They'd be ready for his grace. Grace that says, here's my way. I know you can't do it, but I have grace for that. Trust in Jesus' ability to do it for you. And now... Try to trust me along the way until the kingdom come. If you get lost, here's your compass. Love me and love everybody else. Thank you for listening. Anakinosis is a project for anyone anywhere who's looking to renew their biblical worldview. Next time, Jesus meets his disciples at the bottom of the mountain, trying to serve him, but kind of screwing up.